Okay. <laughs> Are y'all ready this morning? So again, we're going back and forth, so don't accuse me of planning anything and intentionality. Once we decided to go with Galatians and Judges, I'm going back and forth, back and forth. Today we're back in Judges. So first we looked at a scandalous text. Remember Ehud? Who can forget Ehud? Then we looked at a scandalous message, right? We saw an apostolic fight night between Peter and Paul. Who can forget that? Well, today, it's a scandalous life, a scandalous way to live. So just to remind you what scandalous means, it means shocking, outrageous, disgraceful, shameful, appalling, indecent. So in other words, you're not going to like the life you're going to see in Judges 4 and 5. This means that you're going to actually resist the life that's portrayed in Judges 4 and 5. This means that you don't want to live the life in Judges 4 and 5. In other words, the scandalous life in Judges 4 and 5 you want no part of. So again, we have another wonderful, inviting text for all of us. It's got our attention. It grabs us. By the collar and pulls us really, really close. And yet, and yet, the scandalous life of Judges 4 and 5 5 is a life of power. It's a life of experiencing God. It's a life of deep, real, personal communion with God. It's a life of courage. It's a life of boldness. It's a life of bravery. It's a life of confidence. It's a life of freedom. It's a life of love. It's a life of mission, of doing good, of blessing others. So are you ready to live a life you don't want to live? Are you ready to live your worst life now? Do y'all remember that book, Your Best Life Now? I just—I thought that was pretty good, what I just did there. Yeah. Are you ready for a scandalous life? That's the question. Are you ready for it? The answer, according to this text, is no one's ready for it because it's scandalous. It's the last thing you want. But it's what we most desperately need. Now, normally I would have you stand for the reading of God's word at this point, but this is a long text. I'm trying to get snippets from Judges 4 and Judges 5. There's a lot to read. So we're going to read the very end so you can stay seated now. I don't want to exhaust you. Got it? So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to start at Judges 4, 1, and we're going to put it up on the screen. So, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Now, Jabin's mentioned five times, but he's a shadowy figure. He lives in the background. He's not in the foreground. He's almost a nobody. Nobody knows who he is. You just get Jabin, king, Jabin. But there's no, there's no texture. There's no color to him. There's no commentary about him. He's a nobody. <laughs> but we can't say that about his general, who reigned in Hazar. The commander of his army was Caesarea. Now, it's a different story with him because he's a somebody. He's a scary dude. 
We're going to learn in Judges 5, though we're not going to read it, that he actually is a rapist. He's engaged in human trafficking in a sex trade with young girls. So if you thought that was just around today... So the commander of his army was Caesarea, who lived in Harosh, Hagamim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, Sisera, had 900 chariots. Now, when you think of 900 chariots at this time, it's saying iron chariots, so this is a transition to iron. This is a, you want to think of a technologically advanced army. You want to think of like what we think of today, drones and smart bombs and flying tanks like Apache helicopters. This is a technologically advanced army. Night vision. And he, Sisera, oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Cruelly, this is the first time this word is used in Judges. So it was never used for double evil. Remember him? Remember him? What was his name? Kushan Rishathim. And it was never used for Fatty Eglon. But it is used for him. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. It's just interesting. Lapidoth means light, uh, lightning, and then Barak means thunder. It's just interesting. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah uh, and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So this is a regular occasion. She was uh, helping people. What she did actually blessed people. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali. This means he lives in the sticks. He lives in the furthermost regions of Israel in the northern corner. He is in nowhere. He's in Timbuktu. And said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. I will draw Sisera out, the general Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops. And I will give him into your hand. And Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you won't go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose, went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun, Natali, and Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at their, his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now Heber, the Kenanite, Kenite, had separated from the Kenites and descendants of Hobab, Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zanan. Now obviously everybody knew these places and knew these trees, not us. But it's in the text because the people reading it knew these places. Because this is a historical document. This is real history. This isn't myth. Who, who knows of a tree in such and such, except people that live there? When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Now, I want you to think of Mount Tabor as this. Mount Tabor sits like an upside-down bowl in the middle of a massive plain. And so the Lord told Israel to go camp on the bowl with a dude that has a technologically advanced army of tanks on a huge plane. So do you see what Sisera sees? This is, this is incredible. He can't believe what he's hearing. I mean, Sisera sees Israel completely surrounded, completely cut off and slaughtered. In an easy afternoon, he'll be back for tea. 
Sisera shouts. You can hear him shouting to his commanders when he learns this news. What a bunch of losers. They obviously haven't read Sun Tzu's The Art of War. Sisera calls out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harish Hagamim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does the Lord not go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Why would he leave Mount Tabor? That's interesting. And go engage chariots on foot. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Again, why would you flee on foot when you have a chariot? Just questions that the inquiring mind wants to ask when you read this kind of stuff. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Hiroshim, Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword and not a man was left. But Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin king of Hazir and the house of Heber the Canaanite. In other words, Jael's husband Heber is a traitor. He's a collaborator. He's an ally of Jabin and Sisera. Got it? Now, what happens next is best understood if I just read the Hebrew text. Okay? What happens next has double meanings, what are called double entendres. It has images that were pertinent to the ancient world, and it has singular, significant words, in other words, that are only used one time in all the Bible. This is how the old Jewish scholars read it. What I'm about to read is how they read it. This is how the Talmud read it. This is how historical Judaism read it. And there's an Old Testament scholar, because she's a woman, I'm hiding behind her skirt. She translates it, and this is the Hebrew best, I think, in the translation. So I'm just going to read her translation. You, if you want to, you can follow along up there, and you can see how nicely and neat this one is compared to this one. Got it? Here we go. And Jael propositioned Sisera, saying, turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. In other words, because my husband isn't here. So he turned aside into her tent, and she mounted him, sitting on him. This is the Hebrew. After sex, he said to her, let me drink a little water, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and let him drink. Again, she mounted him. After sex, he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, and if anyone comes and asks you, is any man here, say no. Now an Israelite will be rolling on the ground at this point. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, if anyone out there says, is there a man in there? Say, no, there's no man in here. There's not a man in here. There's no man here. But Jael Wafaheber took a tent stake and took a hammer in her hand and went to him secretly a third time for sex. And she thrust the stake into his mouth. She dismounted to the ground. He was fast asleep and sexually spent. Thus he died. So there you have it. Let's return to verse 22. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple, literally his mouth. So, on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. All right, so this is one unit, right? I said Judges 4 and 5 is one unit. So what happens in Judges 4 is the historical events. You got the historical events. That's why you had all the details, right? What happens in Judges 5 
is an interpretation of the historical events. This is how the Bible works. It's very, very important if you're hearing this for the first time. The Bible works by recording God breaking into human history. It records the mighty acts of God in the, ultimately in the person and work of Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. So you have all these divine intrusions into this world's realm. Those are recorded in the Bible, but then the Bible doesn't leave it up to you and me to interpret what those things mean, because if he leaves it up to you and me to interpret them, we misinterpret them. So the Bible gives you historical events, then it gives you the divine interpretations of those historical events called messages or theology, and there you have the Bible. Because if he doesn't leave it up, if he doesn't interpret it for us, we're going to miss it. I mean, just think about, like, how did... How did the Egyptians interpret the parting of the Red Sea? Ah, we got this, right? Or how about uh, the partying Israelites when Moses was having a quiet time on Mount Sinai, right? Do you remember what they said? Ah, don't be so legalistic. <laughs> God's law is just a bunch of suggestions. Or how about the disciples when they saw Jesus perform all his miracles and all his wonders? You know, how did they interpret everything? Wow, man, that was absolutely crazy, Jesus. Now, can we go to McDonald's? We're all really hungry. That's how we interpret the mighty acts of God in the Bible. So God doesn't leave it up to us. So you can stand because now we're going to read God's interpretation of what we just saw in history. Here it is. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. From heaven, the stars fought. This is a cosmic battle. The stars are involved. The heavens are involved. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Most blessed, just in case you're wondering about Jael, I had to put this in here. Most blessed women be Jael. The wife of Heber the Kenite, of the tent-dwelling women most blessed. And here's the whole point of it all. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. Please be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Are you? Yes. All right, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Would you fill us with your spirit even now? I know you're at work. I know you're moving. I know that you're seeking and saving and reaching and rescuing us now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Woo! Right? Yes, there we go. So are you ready to live a life you don't want to live? Are you ready to live your worst life now? Are you ready for a scandalous life? That's what this text is asking you. That's what this text is inviting all of us to right now this morning. And it starts with Deborah, doesn't it? So let's get started. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, Deborah freaks out traditionalists. Deborah freaks out traditionalism. Deborah is a prophetess, but Deborah is a girl. 
And then there's a devil freak in this passage because she does it again. Deborah is a judge, but Deborah is a girl. You see what's happening here? The traditional view freaks out at this right now. Because the traditional view sees Deborah as the last scandalous choice. She's like the last one chosen on the playground. Like, you know, the teams are divided up and everyone's there. And you got down to two people, Ehud and Deborah. And the one dude says, I'll take, Hebrew, I'll take Ehud. You can have Deborah. That's how Deborah is seen in a traditional view. So the traditional view goes like this. The men and judges should be leading. But they're not leading because they're sissies. They're abdicators. They're losers. Because the reasoning goes like this. Everything in Judges is breaking down. This is the traditional view. Everything in Judges is breaking down. The church is breaking down. The culture is breaking down. The home is breaking down. Leadership is breaking down. Men are breaking down. So what does God do? He goes with plan B. He chooses a woman. Now, Besides the obvious question, like here's the obvious question, how come women don't break down too then? Just obvious question, that's the obvious question. There's just one little problem with this view. This is not what the text says. Look at the text again. It says the opposite. Verse 4, now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. The text clearly portrays Deborah as being called by God. Webb, a Reformed scholar, just needed to do that, who did the book of Judges and the New International Commentary of the Old Testament, Nikot, this is the most go-to Old Testament con commentary for serious students of the Bible. He says, there's not a hint in this narrative or elsewhere in Scripture that her exercise of such a role was contrary to God's purposes or a breach of his declared will in the way that the irregular worship practices of the period were. On the contrary, we will see in the song of chapter 5, Deborah arises as the mother of Israel. That's the interpretation chapter, chapter 5. Brought stability, good order, what was previously a chaotic situation. So what is going on with Deborah? That's what everybody wants to know. Whatever's going on with Deborah, here's what I want you to see from this text. Whatever's going on with Deborah is the scandalous life. It's your worst life now. It's the life you don't want to live. What is that? Here it is. No one in the text expects a woman to save the world. No one in the ancient world, not an Israelite, not a Moabite, not a Canaanite, not Jabin, not Sisera. No one in the ancient culture, and let's face it, do many in the modern culture besides Marvel expect it? Because culturally, not biblically, oh, please hear me, culturally, not biblically. And those that were the marriage class this past Wednesday, you know exactly what I'm meaning right now. Culturally, not biblically, women represent A scandalous life is a life of weakness. God is saying to anyone who will listen in the ancient world, God is saying to anyone who will listen in the modern world, the key to power in life is weakness. 
I told you you didn't want to hear this. I told you this is a scandalous life. I told you this is the life nobody wants to live. I told you this is the life that we resist with all our being. I had just a slight smidgen of this. I mean, I'm almost to the point where I'm like, Lord, I don't want to preach on certain passages anymore because you seem to take me to the message of the passage sometime during the week. Well, I had that yesterday, that experience in a sixth grade football field game thing. Let's just say weakness was nowhere to be wanted in my body and my brain and my heart in that day. But the strong person in this text is weak. The weak person in this text is experiencing God, a prophetess. The weak person in this text is on a mission. The weak person in this text is doing good. The weak person in this text is a person of love and friendship and the bonds of community. The weak person in this text is loaded with courage and loaded with bravery and loaded with confidence. The weak person in this text is the one God is using. The weak. Are you ready to live a life you don't want to live? Are you ready to live your worst life now? Are you ready for a, a scandalous life? Well, it continues with Barak. Let's get going with him. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And some of you are thinking, I knew it, I knew it. The traditional view is right. <laughs> Barak is a wimp. Deborah is plan B, right? Now, this is the way the NIV interprets Barak. Listen to how the NIV interprets Barak. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go up. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, loser, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will hand the honor, will hand Sisera over to the woman. So Barak should be leading. He's not. He's timid. He's a loser. So God goes with plan B. Barak is a wimp, Right? Now, there's another way to interpret, though, Barak in this whole passage. You ready for it? Barak, remember where he lived? Remember, he was in Timbuktu. He was in the furthest reaches, northern part of, the, of the, uh, all of Israel. Where was Deborah? She was in the central region. She was very far away. All she had to do was say, there's a word of God for you. And what did he do? What did he do? He goes from the other side, and he obeys instantly. Oh, you have a word from the Lord, Deborah? He's there. In verse 8, Barak is simply, there's another way to interpret verse 8. See, verse 8 says, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Who is Deborah? She's a prophetess. What does a prophetess do? She speaks the word of God. So Barak is saying, the first time he hears Deborah say, hey, I have a word from you, he's there. 
The next thing he does, I'm about ready to go into battle. If the word of God goes with me, I'm going. If the word of God is not going with me, I'm not going. In other words, when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, what he said to him is that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so in Barak, we have someone who's living by every word that comes from the mouth of God. If that's the case, this is a whole new different interpretation, is it not? And now you can go back into verse, let's see, go to verse 9. And that's why the ESV gets it right. What Deborah is simply saying is fact. She's not doing what the NIV says and says, hey, because you're going about this because you're a wimp and a loser, it's going to go to a woman. She's basically saying, listen, you're about ready to go into battle, but you're not going to get the honor. God has given that to a woman. The word of God, prophet, fact. So here's what one uh, scholar says, basically this. Deborah is saying to Barak, here's what he's saying. Even, he says, though you will have to charge down the hillside into the teeth of 900 iron chariots, you will not get the honor for it. The honor instead will go to a woman. And what does Barak do? He goes. He doesn't flinch. What's going on with Barak? The scandalous life. What's the scandalous life? No one expects anyone to give up their honor. No one in the ancient world, no one in the modern world, no one in America, no one in China. No one expects anyone to give up their strength. Barak is basically saying what Paul says, I will boast in my weakness. I will boast not in my strength, not in my honor. I will boast in my weakness. God is saying to anyone who will listen in the ancient world and the modern world right now, God is saying to anyone who will listen, the key the key to power in this life is weakness. Do you want strength in this life? Then boast in your weakness. Embrace your weakness. Even that word boast that Paul says that Barak's doing, it even means celebrate. I told you this was a scandalous life. I told you this is a life you don't want to live. I told you this is your worst life now. Who wants to boast in their weakness? Who wants to be weak? But the strong person in this text is weak. The person experiencing God in this text is weak. The person being used by God in this text is weak. The person blessing others in this text is weak. The person loving others in this text is weak. The person who's free in this text is weak. Are you ready to live your worst life now? Are you ready to live a scandalous life? Well, we wish it didn't continue, but it does continue with Jael. So just in case we missed it earlier, I'm going to read God's interpretation of chapter 4. 
So this is not Judges 4, right? We saw Judges 4 from the Hebrew translation. This is now Judges 5's interpretation of the historical event. It goes like this. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He, Sisera, asked for water after sex. She gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg, and her hand, her right hand, and the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his head. Between her legs he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her legs he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. What's going on with Jael? The scandalous life. What do you mean? No one expects the powerful to be weak. No one in the ancient world, no one in the modern world expects self-effort and self-trust to be weak. Jeffrey Epstein didn't. All the powerful today do not. All the big corporations today do not. All the blustery, self-appointed leaders do not. And sadly, many of us pastors and church leaders and churches do not. The incredible irony in this is that the man who violated women dies between a woman's legs. It's incredible. No one expects that the powerful are weak. No one expects self-trust and self-effort to be weak. Only in the Bible's world are the powerful weak. So God is saying to anyone who will listen, God is saying to anyone in the ancient world, he's saying to anyone in the modern world, the key to power in life is weakness. Do you want strength in this life? then don't live a life of self-effort. Do you want power in this life? Then don't live a life of self-trust. For that is ultimate weakness. But weakness before God is ultimate strength. This is the scandalous life. This is the life no one wants to live. This is the life we resist with everything we got. But the strong in this text is weak. The ones communing with God and experiencing God and being used by God and full of freedom and courage and bravery are weak. So Mount Tabor, remember we talked about that? Let's end this thing. Remember Mount Tabor was on that bowl I told you about? Mount Tabor is weakness to the dark powers. You see that? I mean, the dark powers of... Si hey, that was, I, I like that song, sweetie. That was Lord of the Rings, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm very good. I, I have, uh, mine is Harry Potter, but I might change to that. Thank you, sweetie. Did you turn it off? Very good. Okay. Mount Tabor sits on a bowl, right? It's a bowl. It's an upside-down bowl in the middle of a plain, right? It is weakness to the dark powers. It's weakness to the dark powers of self-trust and self-effort. 
Weakness to the dark powers of Jabin and especially the general Sisera. But Mount Tabor, this place of weakness, is where God shows up. It's where the true storm God shows up. It's where lightning flashed. It's where an earthquake shook. It's where a flash flood hit chariots on a plain. It's where the rivers rose. It's where God unleashed his power. And 900 chariots never had a chance. So there's another mountain, right? There's Mount Golgotha. You know what they call that place in the New Testament? Yeah. What a name, right? What a name, the place of skull. Weakness to the dark powers is Mount Golgotha. The cross is weakness to the dark powers of sin and death and ultimate evil and all self-trust and all self-effort in all the world. It's the place of weakness, and it's weakness, and they look at it, and yet at that place, God shows up, and he unleashes power. The mighty Savior saves the world. Jesus is the storm God. Jesus is the mighty God, the mighty Savior. So are you ready to live a scandalous life, your worst life now? Who's ready for it, right? So here's what you're going to do. What is your weakness? This is how we're ending. What is your weakness this morning? Is your weakness a sin? Is your weakness an addiction? Is your weakness a bad relationship? Is your weakness your marriage? Is your weakness a child? Is your weakness your health, your past? the cultural chaos? Is your weakness your work or your school or the bully? Is your weakness someone who sinned against you? Is your weakness you feel distant from God? What is your weakness? Here's what I want you to do. Take that weakness right now. I want you to picture Jesus standing right in front of you right now, looking you right in the eye and saying to you right now, my power is made perfect in your strength that is the scandal